Well, this opening sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Way to start off your episode strong, I know, I can't even remember what the hell I did this past weekend. (laughs) All right, all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 88 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Tim K episode of the SLS Cast because in the year 1988, the world was graced with Tim. For better or worse. <laughs> For worse. J- just admit it. <laughs> For worse. So, no no bonus information this time, y'all. This is the Tim episode. It's Tim's turn. We did uh, the Matt episode for episode 77, the year of my birth, and now we're doing, here we are, episode 88, the year of Tim's birth. How have you been, sir? I've been doing pretty well. I've been doing pretty well. Can't, uh, I went to, well, yeah, I'm trying to think of what I've been up to the past weekend sounds exciting that's for sure all right well i'm gonna tell you what i did this past week uh i didn't really do all that much but last night no saturday night we had some friends over including my buddy rob uh and he as you know was responsible for my 200 dollars bottle of whiskey and so we had friends over, including Rob, and we did steaks. You know, I was out grilling ribeyes, and we did the roasted asparagus and all that good fun stuff. And we decided to crack open the $200 bottle of whiskey. And I gotta tell you, it is the best damn whiskey I've ever had in my life. Really? Yes. How, how different did it taste from regular Jack Daniels? Well, it's Crown, or for Crown. starters. Um, okay, you know how Crown has a pretty strong yet smooth kind of a flavor to it? Has a little bit of a burn towards the back end when you after you're, you know, because it's whiskey, right? Yeah. This actually has a bouquet that includes cherry. It literally smells like it's got cherries in it. And it is smooth like water. Neither Rob nor my wife drink whiskey in any way, shape, or form. And they downed it like it was water and were like, wow, that was amazing. Wow. Ultra smooth, almost no heat or anything that you would normally get with alcohol when you've taken a straight shot. And, I mean, just literally glides down your throat. It's just amazing. I highly recommend it. If you can get your hands on this stuff. Yeah, totally, man. Well, if I have an extra $200 to spare, I'll get a hold of Rob and get <laughs> well, the we deets. Well, we literally, we only did, we only did the, uh, just one pass around. So we did like, you know, one shot for Rob, one shot for, for Jen, one shot for another one of my friends, and then myself and a couple others, we had a double. So there's still plenty in the bottle. We actually then resealed the bottle and then put the bottle back in the bag and put the bag back in the box and put the sleeve back on the box and put the box back up. So this will just kind of be a special occasion thing that I imagine will last. 
last a lifetime. A Be one of those like <laughs> once a year you will get you'll get together with Rob and do the yes. ceremonial drinking of the Well, of it the doesn't whiskey. have to be ceremonial with Rob now because he was here for the actual christening. Oh, yeah. So if he does happen to be here for any special events or cool things that occur, then of course, naturally That's not going to happen. Like for instance, I imagine when you come down for the holidays, there will be a shot. Oh, definitely. Or a double. Definitely. For, for that. So you too will be able to sample and enjoy. Oh, by the way, I remember what I did this past weekend, and I Woo-hoo! cannot believe I forgot about it. I went to the Orange County Fair, the OC Fair, over in, you guessed it, Orange County, California. And it's one of those dealios where you pay to get in. Luckily, if you get there at right when they open at 10 o'clock in the morning, it's 3 bucks to get in. Normally, it's 12 bucks. But you go in, and then you still have to pay for food. You have to pay to ride on any rides. Basically, the only thing that's free are is base are like like all the art shows, all the animals and stuff, the livestock that they have around. You can go to pig races. We went to the pig races. We went to a turkey run, a turkey stampede, and one thing that uh, that we witnessed was the milking of a camel. Apparently, that was something that they really wanted to bring to Southern California, was camel milking. And it's actually not as disgusting as one would think, because it's basically the camel releases the milk. There's no, like, uttering involved, especially since where the milk comes from looks like a giant scrotum. But, uh, yeah... Um, that wasn't the only fun part of the OC Fair. You got the fried foods. Are you a fan of the various fried foods? I mean, I'm not talking about, like, fried pickles and stuff. I'm talking about, like, the fried Twinkies, the fried Oreos, fried potato chips. Well, potato chips are already fried. Deep fried. Deep fried potato chips. So they take a... Already... Well, they already are. You take a potato, you slice it up thin, you throw it in a deep fat fryer, and then you cook it, and that's a potato chip. So you're telling me they then take said potato chip, they then dip it in a batter again, and then deep fry it again? Yes. Wow. That's impressive. Yes. I mean, I'm fat, and that's impressive. <laughs> um, ideas. No, not because ideas, just because, holy shit, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't even do that. Uh, no, I, I am not a fan of just, you know, deep fry anything just because it can be deep fried. I would probably like try something just for the novelty of trying it, but no, I, uh, I chicken fried steak, fried chicken, um, that that's pretty much about the extent of fried that I go, or fri- French fries or something. I mean, that's about the extent of frying or whatever. I'm not a big deep fry just because Twinkies and all that kind of shit. Deep fried Snickers bars. Yeah. No, no, none of that. Yeah, when we went two years ago, deep fried Oreos was the big thing. This year, it's the Snickers and the Reese's. And so we tried the deep fried Reese's and the deep fried Snickers. And it's really not that amazing. You know, it's like a frozen banana. If you just go and get a generic frozen banana from one of these fair carnival stands or whatever... It's not that great. I mean, when you think about a frozen banana, it's like, you know what? That sounds delicious. A a hard coat of chocolate and nuts on a frozen banana is wonderful. But really, it's not because you really don't taste the banana because you're really working hard at trying to chew the frozen banana, which when it's frozen, you really can't eat it 
then again, you really can't lick it because there's actually no taste when you lick a frozen banana. You actually really need to like munch on it. But then, it, you know, again, you really don't taste that much. So those are a little overrated, but I did get my ceremonial foot-long wiener hot dog on a bun with the grilled peppers and the grilled onions and all that shit. It was good. Tasty. It was very, very cool delicious. Right yes. But before we get to the news news, I do have some news of the weird for you. Bring it. All right. And, and by weird, it's just because it stands out. It's actually amazing news as far as I'm concerned. This comes to us uh, from Eater.com. Man buys 23 Burger King apple pies to spite a small child. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, apparently after waiting in line in front of a careless mother and her screaming child, a man who was having a bad day and a headache decided to ruin that family's day. The child was screaming, quote, I want fucking pie, end quote. So the man bought up every last pie, all 23 of them, and walked out of the Burger King location, turning only to see the enraged mother and child, helpless, as the cashier told them that the restaurant had just sold out of pie. This man is my hero. And I bet the cashier gladly... <laughs> sold them those I'm pies. Sure. That kid, yeah, that kid on the cashier was probably like, sorry, <clears throat> sorry, ma'am, we're all out of pie. <sighs> God, to have been there, I would have paid for his pie if I saw what he was doing and caught on. I would have paid for it for him. <laughs> yeah. So, I guess if you're ready for the real stuff, we can get to the real stuff. Let's do it. All right, folks, here we go. It is the news. All right, sir. Today is August 11th. 2014 and we are leading off with our show uh with the news segment with some very devastating news from huffingtonpost.com courtesy of alana horowitz robin williams dead beloved actor dies in apparent suicide and just yeah he was 63 the apparent cause of death was suicide by asphyxiation, authorities said. According to his publicist, Williams had been battling severe depression and spent time in rehab as recently as July. Police said that Williams was found unconscious around noon in his home in Timuron, California, near San Francisco. Williams was best known for his starring roles in classic comedies like Mrs. Doubtfire, Good Morning Vietnam, and Jumanji, but also in acclaimed dramas such as Dead Poet Society. He won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Dr. Sean McGuire in Goodwill Hunting. He rose to fame while playing Mork the Alien in the TV show Mork and Mindy, a Happy Days spinoff. I don't, there's really not a whole lot to say other than just he was an amazing talent. And I truly am. I was very sad to find out this, to find out this. I was praying it was a hoax when I initially found out. And this is just, we, we've, lost someone who brought light to truly millions upon millions of people and 
If anything else, this should go to show you the lengths to which depression can drive you. And to please, please always take clinical depression seriously. Um, because when someone can't see the profound impact that they have had on so many countless numbers of people and chooses to go this apparent route is I think even more sad than the fact that he was depressed to begin with and I think I just want to sum it up for for this episode um, by saying by, by having a quote from Susan Schneider the actor's wife quote this morning I lost my husband and my best friend while the world lost one of its most beloved artists and beautiful human beings I am utterly heartbroken. On behalf of Robin's family, we are asking for privacy during our time of profound grief. As he is remembered, it is our hope that the focus will not be on Robin's death, but on the countless moments of joy and laughter he gave to millions. End quote. Just a slight addendum here for this particular story. Next week, our third segment is going to be a discussion. We typically don't do back-to-back segments that are the same, but... Um, we are going to do another discussions with Matt and Tim next week. Um, and we're going to be talking more about the life and times of Robin Williams and discussing our favorite films, uh, because it's going to be impossible to limit it to just three. Well, another somber news, we have Texas Chainsaw Massacre star Marilyn Burns. She passed away at the age of 65. Uh, she was known for playing the star, the star role of Sally Hardesty in Tobe Hooper's 1974 horror classic. According to the Hollywood Reporter, Burns' rep said this, quote, She was found unresponsive by a family member this morning in her Houston, Texas area home. Her family asks for privacy at this time. Further details will be released later. End quotes. And again, that was Texas Chainsaw Massacre Marilyn Burns. She was 65 years old. The last passing, Minahem Golan, or Minahem Golan. I Pardon me if I'm butchering the name. I probably am. But he is known for producing such classics as The Delta Force, The Death Wish sequels, Master of the Universe, and Bloodsport. He was also the head of Canon Films, who produced such classics as the utterly horrific Superman, The Quest for Peace. Funny story, he decided to... Okay, well, originally he was supposed to be doing Spider-Man. However, he took the budget he got for Spider-Man, or the money he had for the budget of Spider-Man, he split that budget in half and decided to make two separate movies with that with that money. And one of those movies was Master of the Universe. And those the two movies that he made with that budget did absolutely horrible. They didn't even make their budgets back. So he never got to make the Spider-Man film that he wanted to do. And he was wanting to take whatever profit that he made, which he was hoping was going to be a, a lot for Master of the Universe in the other film, and put it towards Spider-Man. But like I said, it did not work. And so, yeah, uh, those are the two additional passings, Menahim Golan and Marilyn Burns. Okay, well then, 
Shifting gears to some decidedly lighter news, uh, we're going to go over to SlashFilm.com, courtesy of Germaine Lussier. Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice moves to March 2016. Yes, DC has budged. Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice has moved from its May 6, 2016 release date and will now open on March 25th, 2016. Yes, March. It now opens unopposed instead of in a direct showdown with Marvel Studios and Captain America 3. I'm I'm kind of wondering if they just called up Disney and were like, "Can we please have this date? Please. Can we just please thank thank you?" Um, that's about all I can think of for that. Uh, it turns out, though, that this date is uh, a change which is part of a whole set of new DC film dates set out by Warner Brothers. This is the second time the film, directed by Sna- Zack Snyder, has moved its release. Originally, it was going to come out in the summer of 2015, but then moved to May 6, 2016, when major script rewrites opened up the Warner Brothers DC Universe. At that time, Marvel already had a film scheduled for that date, but it was untitled. Turns out that when asked about this, Marvel Studios president uh, Kevin Feige, he said that Marvel would not budge. They then revealed that Captain America 3 was the movie that was opening up. But Warner Brothers also said they weren't going to move. And yet... Now it's finally happened, and it is significant, I think. What do you think, Tim? Do you think this is a significant move to to try and give it as much? They're smart for doing it. I mean, you would have to be stupid to have two big blockbuster superhero movies opening on the same weekend. So, we already know Marvel wasn't going to do it, because that's like their, that is their reserved date. So <laughs> they literally called shotgun. Really, they called shotgun back in 2008. Yep, those dibs. So, all right, cool. Uh, what do you got there, sir? All right, up next for me, I have a series of three updates. First one being an update on the Brian Singer, the Brian Singer abuse, sex abuse case. Yes, awesome. Bring it on. Very excited to hear this news. This is from thehollywoodreporter.com, and this is what it says. Uh, It's from an article entitled, Hollywood Sex Abuse Accuser Apparently Seeks to Withdraw Case Against Brian Singer. This is written by Jonathan Hendel, and it says this, quote, Michael Egan, who filed teen sex abuse case against X-Men director Brian Singer and three others in April amid white-hot publicity at standing-room-only press conferences is now apparently seeking to withdraw his last remaining suit against those defendants, but this time via motion filled Monday without publicity. Because the motion is sealed, it's not possible to quote more than its title, which is Plaintiff's Opposition to Motion to Withdraw as Counsel Request for Court Order of Dismissal Without Prejudice or an Award of Cost or Fees in the Interest of Justice. Filed by Michael F. Egan III, pro se, in that title. The filing comes in the Hawaii federal court case against Singer. Egan has already withdrawn cases against the three other defendants, Gary Goddard, David Newman, and Garth Antsir. Those withdrawals came as the cases which claimed teen sex abuse at parties at Hawaii and Los Angeles mansions from 1997 to 1999, 
appeared to collapse under the weight of Egan's own prior sworn statements from 2003, in which he said that he'd never been to Hawaii and that no other than the occupants of the Los Angeles mansion had sexually molested him. He had even signed a statement in 2003 that he'd never had sexual contact with Newman. In addition, several of the defendants filed evidence, such as credit card receipts, and witness declarations to show that they hadn't been in Hawaii during the period in question. It also appears from the title of today's motion that Egan and his lawyer, Jeffrey Herman, are now at odds. Last week, Herman moved to withdraw from representing Egan, but the motion by Egan apparently opposes the move. And there's more to the article here. You can check the rest out. Actually, there's a pretty pretty nice, uh, nice good amount left. So, so yeah, it's pretty much he's kind of uh, shot himself in the foot some time ago, and once he realized he can't uh, he can't change what he said eleven years ago, you know, time to forfeit, move on. Do you have anything to add to that, Matt? Uh, no, I'm just glad that this saga is finally over. Exactly. Uh, next up for the updates is pertains to the next Evil Dead film. If you were anticipating it, if you're waiting for an Evil Dead 2 movie, oh, you're not going to like this. Uh, prepare to be disappointed, ultimately. Now, for a low-budget horror film, the most recent Evil Dead movie that came out this past year, brought in a $97 million box office total, worldwide, $97 million, which isn't that bad considering... Uh, how much it cost to make the movie was significantly small. I can't. I, I don't know what, what how much uh, their budget was for the film, but it was definitely small. You have no named actors in the film, so uh, that cut down the cost considerably. Seventeen million. Oh, seventeen million to make. Well, that that's probably also including yes. advertising and all that stuff. Well, sure. And even if you account the typical Hollywood formula of double your budget before you start making money i mean we're clearly about three times over that so exactly yeah exactly yeah this is from a cinemablend.com article and uh i'm quoting it here it says that wrong says jane levy who tells bloody disgusting that there are currently no plans for an evil dead 2 and this is what jane levy says and levy or levy was the final girl they have it in quotes there, the final girl of the remake, you know, pretty much the girl who turns into, who turns into the zombie, the, you know, the spirits take over her, the book of the dead takes over her, all that jazz. She says this, quote, I don't think they're going to make it. I mean, they're always coming up with a new thing. Now I hear they're making a TV show. I was like, what? She laughs. I honestly don't know, but it doesn't seem like there's going to be an evil dead too anytime soon. At least, not with me in it. In quotes. And then lastly, for the updates. This is for the upcoming Terminator 5 movie. And Arnold Schwarzenegger posted a picture of himself on Instagram. Well, it's the backside of him looking all cool and whatnot. But the main focus of the picture is the chair, the director's chair that he is sitting in. And it's reveals, and it reveals the title of the new Terminator movie. And it's called Terminator Genesis. But it's not spelled normally, or like how Genesis is normally spelled. It's spelled 
G E N I S Y S. Why is that? I have no idea. So we will look forward to Terminator Genesis, July of 2015. Yahoo! Wait, wait, I'm sorry. How is it spelled again? G E N I S Y S. Uh, I don't know. I guess maybe, maybe because they have some parents who live in the hood, they just want to make it stand out. Uh, do people in the hood particularly spell Genesis like that? Is that like a commonly they known just thing? Try and make the, the names as unique as possible. It is very unique. That's how the kids text the word nowadays. They have no problem spelling Terminator how it's regularly spelled, normally spelled, but Genesis—that's where. The major grammatical problems come to surface. They, they they name their children crazy things like unique and Key and Peele did a great skit on it. It was pretty funny. They just keep like the names just get weirder and weirder <laughs> and weirder and weirder. It's hilarious. oh, is that when they do like the football players and they introduce yeah, themselves and like yeah. whatever school they came from? Right. Yeah, good stuff. Well, let's see here. Turns out, also from SlashFilm.com, courtesy of Jermaine Lucier again, everyone involved with Galaxy Quest wants a sequel. 1999 was an amazing year for movies. One of the best ever. Being John Malkovich, The Matrix, Fight Club, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut, American Beauty, the list goes on and on. A film that also belongs on that list but is rarely mentioned in the same space is Galaxy Quest. The smart, hilarious send-up of geek culture with a sci-fi twist was a modest hit, grossing $91 million worldwide, but continues to be popular because it struck a cultural chord and was so ahead of its time. The idea of Galaxy Quest sequel has been batted around for years. In a recent oral history of the film done by MTV, several members of the cast jumped on board. Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Sam Rockwell, Justin Long, along with director Dean uh, Pariso, producer Mark Johnson, and writer Robert Gordon all talked about it. They would do a Galaxy Quest sequel in a heartbeat. What do you think, Tim? I I think that would be fun. It would make for a nice little uh, satire with all the superhero movies that are super popular right now and all the, uh, you know, like Marvel is dominating the box office currently. So it'd be kind of neat if they came back and, you know, kind of did, did a did a spin, a spin off it. I, I don't know, somehow work in a sci-fi versus superhero plot line. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just really think it would also, I agree with you. I just think it would be, Completely fantastic. It's such a good movie. I remember going to see it at the movie theater uh, the day it came I out. I saw it too. I did. Yeah, I, it was great. I saw it in the theater as well. Laughed my ass off. It was fantastic. So, anyway, all right. What do you got, sir? I only have one thing left. So, okay. So a lot of directors, many directors, filmmakers, producers have banded together in a last ditch effort to keep Kodak Film alive. To keep it. Uh, to keep it available for filmmakers to, you know, so movies can easily be preserved on film. Because as we all know, film has a different look and a different feel than shooting a movie on an SD card or on a hard drive or whatnot. 
And this is from thehollywoodreporter.com, an article entitled, Martin Scorsese Speaks Out in Support of Keeping Kodak Film Alive, written by Carolyn Giardina. Giardina? Giardina? Carolyn Giardina, yeah. And this is what it says, quote, Calling Kodak's decision to continue its production of film stock a positive one, director Martin Scorsese said, Our industry, our filmmakers, rallied behind Kodak because we knew that we couldn't afford to lose them, the way we've lost so many other film stocks. Last week, Kodak revealed that... Last week, it's been a couple weeks by now. Last week, Kodak revealed that it plans to continue to manufacture film following negotiations with the major studios and urged by film proponents such as J.J. Abrams and Christopher Nolan that are helping the iconic director to create a viable model for film production. Said Scorsese, who chairs the Film Foundation, in a statement, We have many names for, w- for what we do. Cinema, movies, motion pictures, and film. We're called directors, but more often we're called filmmakers. Filmmakers. I'm not suggesting that... We ignore the obvious, HD isn't coming, it's here. The advantages are numerous. The cameras are lighter, it's much easier to shoot at night. We have more means at our disposal for altering and perfecting our images. And the cameras are more affordable. Films really can be made now for very little money. Even those of us still shooting on film finish in HD. And our movies are projected in HD. So we could easily agree that the future is here, that film is cumbersome and imperfect and difficult to transport and prone to wear and decay, and that it's time to forget the past and say goodbye. Really, that could be easily done, too easily. Noting that we are often reminded that film is a business, he added that film is also an art form and young people who are driven to make films should have access to the tools and materials that were the building blocks of that art form. Would anyone dream of telling young artists to throw away their paints and canvases because iPads are so much easier to carry? Of course not. In that history of motion pictures, only a minuscule percentage of the works comprising out art form was shot on film. Everything we do in HD is an effort to recreate the look of film, Film, even now, offers a richer visual palette than HD. End quote. And the article goes on from there. What do you think, Matt? Do you think uh, this is a... Do you think he has a point? Do you think what he is saying is true? I mean, I definitely like how he puts into perspective saying that, well, you don't tell painters to throw away their paintbrushes and their paints and just use, you know, Apple 3D creating stuff, software, whatever. Well, that's the thing, though, is that there's... It's different mediums for different purposes. There is also demand for the different media for different purposes. So when it comes to paint, true, you could just go and take a digital photo uh, on your cell phone and then bring it home and load it up on your computer and blow it up on a screen and then use Photoshop or even Microsoft Paint if you're feeling froggy and recreate that in an artistic way and then do whatever. But people still want acrylic paints and people still want oil paintings and that, you know, so there's still a demand for it. 
The thing is, is that when it comes to film versus digital, there just simply isn't as much demand for film. But as you and I have already stated, um, you know, good lord, uh, however, the, however many times, I think that there, you know, it should be allowed to be a choice. And if you can fight for it and win, or if you can finance it yourself, or if you can, if you've got the clout to have film and that's what you want, go for it. But I think it's just becoming more and more of a niche thing because digital is an easier medium in which to capture movement. And that's simply all there is to it. Yeah, I think film is definitely something that does need to be available because with studying film and working with film myself a lot and also working with uh, with digital cameras, and I'm just doing a lot of stuff digitally also because I did a lot of stuff with short films, filmmaking, and then working with uh, uh, electronic filmmaking, a class, it was more news uh News centra, centra, uh, news focus, focused on the news, like reporting and all that stuff, which they use, obviously, digital, digital broadcasting and all that stuff, because it's that is easier to edit. It's easier to upload on your computer and edit and work with. But with film, he does have a point. It definitely has a better look to it. Well, then, last but certainly not least, from me, we've got from comicbookmovie.com, courtesy of. Starfox, who apparently is just a contributor to the website. You, too, it's still not too late. I guess not. I mean, if you really want to, you could try and make it trend again, but probably won't. <laughs> you, too, can support the Deadpool movie campaign. Uh, Reet Reese, who was the writer, producer of Deadpool, sent out a tweet back on the 7th that said, Team Pool! Needs your official vote of support. Let's break the internet. Retweet if you would buy a ticket to the Deadpool movie. Now, it ended up with... What? Oh, some around 50,000 50, retweets or so. Around 12,000, 13,000 favorites on Twitter. I just think it's funny that you get one little bit of leaked footage. And... People are just insanely rabid. Oh, there's a Deadpool movie. There, there's got to be a Deadpool movie. There's gotta... I don't know. I just really think that it'd be much nicer if people just accepted that they had their chance with Deadpool and then they ruined it by having him be in uh, what Wolverine, right? Wolverine and Origins, X-Men Origins. So, yeah. If they hadn't ruined it there, there probably would be a Deadpool movie today. <laughs> True that. True that. Yeah. The year 2014 marks the 30th anniversary of Freddy Krueger. That would be Robert England's Freddy Krueger. Now, in 2003, for Freddy Krueger versus Jason, or Freddy versus Jason, that movie, that was his, you know, the, England said goodbye to the character then. That was supposed to be his farewell, his send-off to the character. So then they would come across or come along and reboot the franchise, which they they technically they did, but it failed, you know, a couple of few years ago. But 
not only because it's its 30th anniversary this year, he decided to, Robert England decided to don the Freddy Krueger makeup and the prosthetics and make an appearance to help a Chicago drive-in, the, the Midway drive-in. Um, it's on the brink of, clo- or it was on the brink of closing, of shutting down. They needed money to fund the transfer of, or the transition from film projectors to digital projectors to keep up with the 3d movies and to keep up with uh the change in technology the upgrade the upgrading of technology and so in hopes to raise that money he donned the whole makeup the whole setup and they charged 323 dollars per person whoever wanted to come up and get a picture with the real freddy krueger and i gotta say if it was 323 bucks I definitely would have paid that money to have get, gotten a picture with Robert England's Freddy Krueger. Uh, again, that was the Midway Drive-In Theater in Chicago, and this is what Robert England told Fox 32 in Chicago uh, in regards to the Drive-In Theater there. Quote, I love the Midway. I love the fact that they're saving drive-in movies. Like many young men of the boomer generation, I think that's where I lost my virginity. End all quotes. And that's the news. Okay. All right. Well, here we go, then. Uh, Turns out that we are ready to have another... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, we will be having a discussion about the 61st Academy Awards over the nominations for and winner of Best Picture. All of these movies were from 1988, the year that Tim was born. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. So the the, the nominees were Rain Man, The Accidental Tourist, Dangerous Liaisons, Mississippi Burning, and Working Girl. The winner was Rain Man. And I gotta say, and Tim, we were already talking about this before, that 1988 was just a hell of a year for movies. Uh, you know. You're welcome. Um, I'm glad I was able to do that for, <laughs> for America, for the world. There you go, indeed. I mean, we had Gorillas in the Mist. You had, and this, of course, was besides that. You know, a fish called Wanda. Uh, you also had Stand and Deliver, uh, Last Temptation of Christ. That just, I mean, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Tons and tons. Best animated short for that year, by the way, was this tiny little company called Pixar, who made a little short called Tin Toy. So, I mean, good lord, it's just unbelievable the amount of great films that were given, that, that were, that were released that year. But, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, our focus is merely on the best picture category. And starting with the winner was Rain Man, which is 1988's American comedy drama film. It was directed by Barry Levinson, who went on to get Best Director, by the way. Uh, and starred Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. 
Dustin Hoffman actually also won Academy Award there. So, you can kind of see where the Academy was leaning towards on this one. And this is the one where Dustin Hoffman plays the estranged brother of Tom Cruise's character, who's kind of a shady Lamborghini dealer. And uh, he, he it turns out that uh, he has to go and meet up with this brother to try and secure some funds and uh, to his father's estate. Whereupon he learns that his brother is actually autistic. And shenanigans ensue and relationships get built and what you have there. Um, you know, let, let's see. We also had The Accidental Tourist. It's a drama film. And this was uh, directed by Lawrence Kasdan. And it starred William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, Gina Davis. Uh, and let's see. People you wouldn't have necessarily known then, but know now. Bill Pullman and Ed Beagley Jr. So, uh, yeah, you've got... And this, of course, follows the uh, misadventures of a travel writer and his falling apart marriage and subsequent relationship that he finds with someone else. We then move on to Dangerous Liaisons, which is the historical drama film. And this one is directed by Stephen Frears and stars Glenn Close, John Malkovich, and Michelle Pfeiffer, but also has a young Uma Thurman, as well as a young Keanu Reeves, and for Doctor Who fans out there, Peter Capaldi was in this film as well. And... To give you an idea, this is basically a compl- uh, this is a complicated love or sex plot story among people who really aren't very nice. But to give you an idea, if you saw the 1999 adaptation, which was Cruel Intentions with uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Felipe and Reese Witherspoon, then you, this this is the plot is basically the same. It's just this one, of course, is taking place in 18th century. Uh, France. We then get Mississippi Burning. It's the American thriller film. This one was directed by Alan Parker and starred Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe, Francis McDormand as well, Brad Dourif, and R. Lee Emery. And this is the story, that's the movie that is loosely based on the civil rights workers who were killed in Mississippi in 1964. And yet they have, this is a very unique take on it, but Essentially, civil rights workers disappear, and FBI goes in to investigate and how, how it all works out. Last but not least, we have the romantic comedy drama Working Girl. This one was uh, directed by Mike Nichols and stars Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver, Alec Baldwin, John Cusack, I'm sorry, Joan Cusack. Uh, Kevin Spacey in a small young role, and also a young small role for Oliver Platt. And this is about the young girl played by Melanie Griffith who's trying to take it all and get it all on her own who stumbles into a situation where she has to basically masquerade as someone else to get her ideas out there and take over Wall Street. Of all of these films, I must say, 
it's really kind of a tie for me between Accidental Tourist and Mississippi Burning. Now, again, all of these movies are fantastic. However, Dangerous Liaisons, while cinematically fantastic and telling in, in the way that it tells a very complex story, was well thought out and definitely directed well and acted very well Glenn Close holy crap this is basically I was telling Tim before where you got the uh, cinematic or you know sexual <laughs> repressed version of Glenn Close's character from Damages this one really didn't do it for me um, I, I certainly understand why it was nominated but I felt it was definitely the weakest of the bunch Working Girl uh, is a fantastic movie and great performances and just solid characters. So great writing to support that characters. And the story was definitely told in a wonderful way. So, I mean, you've just, you've just got everything there to make a good movie, but it's an eighties fun movie. It's a fun movie. That's just way too eighties. And I don't think a movie like this would be successful today. Uh, I don't, I would definitely say it's heavily, heavily dated, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's aged poorly because of the caliber of the acting in the stars. So you could definitely go back and see it. But I really think that a movie of this style, you're going to have to watch this movie to get it. I don't really see how see a movie like this being successful today. Still fantastic movie. But, man, you've got just so much amazing character-driven drama and character... Uh, building done in this thriller style for Mississippi Burning. And I mean, to tell you, there, I mean, good lord, one of my favorite character actors, Stephen Tobolowski, is in this movie. And I, I've never wanted to hate him before, you know, but you, when you see this movie and you see this character, you just get a feel. I mean, these are the kinds of performances that are being wrought in this film. It's just unbelievable. The, the tension and yet, you still feel for the characters and to some degree as much as you hate them you can still and you almost feel bad for yourself kind of empathize with some of these people in this town some of the bad guys not the direct bad guys but those associated with them guilty by association um it's and it's so gripping you know it's just wow Wow, wow, wow. Such a great, such a great movie. And then, of course, my personal favorite, The Accidental Tourist. Again, a movie that would not do some, that would not necessarily be like a super huge hit today. But good God, what a great story. This is true. This is a true example of great drama. It's just simply telling an amazing story. And it's doing it in the most simplest way possible so that you're literally a fly on the wall. You're just experiencing everything as it happens. And you find yourself seeing parts of yourself in all of these different characters. And it makes it that much more compelling for you. And quite frankly... I don't know. That's why I say it's a tie for me between the best of the, these movies being The Accidental Tourist and Mississippi Burning, because I don't know which one I would have to pick between the two of them. However, 
The winner, as we said, was Rain Man. Rain Man, again, fantastic movie. And I would definitely say, since I'm giving it a tie for first on Accidental Tourist in Mississippi Burning, that Rain Man, for me, is second, clearly. But I think this one was just kind of the right, it, it struck the right chord at the right time. It was, it was in for the pop culture. It was in for the marketing. The character that Dustin Hoffman portrayed was done cleverly, cleverly, yeah, cleverly, <laughs> um, in a most clever fashion. And yet at the same time, clearly not overdone. And I think that all these things came together to just, it couldn't be stopped. And it's still a fantastic movie. Definitely a fantastic movie. But was it the best? Uh, I, I, I have to say, between The Accidental Tourist and Mississippi Burning, no. But it's still a damn fine movie. And I would recommend any of these movies for you to watch. Even Dangerous Liaisons, if you're into that kind of thing. So that's my that's that's the overview of all the of all the picks and that's my views on said picks. So what do you think Tim? Where do you where where what what are your thoughts and I don't know what are, are we even going to be discussing anything at this point? <laughs> uh probably not at this point. <laughs> Maybe. Personally I think Rain Man is the best out of all these movies. Why you may ask, I will tell you why. It is because you can watch Rain Man now and it holds up completely today. What I mean is, you watch Working Girl. Again, all, okay, all these movies are great movies. Some are better than others, but they're all fantastic films. Working Girl, it's dated. The, uh, the, the prob, the secretary being the boss, the woman wanting to be the boss, that, that's kind of a, the nine to five scenario. That's kind of a dated storyline that was very popular in the 80s and even, I guess, the, the early 90s. Mississippi Burning. Fantastic movie. I'm there with Matt. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite movies. G uh, Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe had a great chemistry, but there is still something about it where, uh, especially Willem Dafoe's character, it's, it's still, it really has that, like, classic kind of like, well, we need, we need that stereotypical hard-ass young cop, and then we need the crass older backwoods cop who just might be as racist, may or may not be as racist as the very people, Ku Klux Klan, that he's trying to, you know, bring down or stop. And you have Dangerous Liaisons, where brilliant writing, brilliant directing, I love me some Stephen Frears. Uh, Stephen Frears, for those of you who do not know who he is, he directed a, well, he directed The Queen. He did, uh, High Fidelity with John Cusack. He recently, last year, he did Philomena. So he's done some fantastic films, including one of my favorite TV movies, Three Men on a Boat with Tim Curry and Michael Palin from the early, early 70s. He just has a, a very whimsical way of directing movies. And this is how, that's how kind of Dangerous Liaisons is. It sets itself apart from other period dramas such as that. I mean, it's not just like, ooh, the grandiose 
gowns and the grandiose scenery. No, 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 no. The movie is not about the gowns. It's not about the costumes. It's not about the uh, the scenery. Yes, you do see the costumes, but uh, most of the movie takes place indoors. I mean, they hardly ever have dialogue that takes place for a substantial period of time outside. Uh, which I thought was very interesting. And you look at the, the, the shots, a lot of them are close-up shots, medium shots, so you don't have these glamorous costumes staring at you the entire time. I mean, really, the only costume you see the most of is Glenn Close's outfit, because she is what I guess what you would call the, uh, the, the bad guy, the bad woman of the film, so you need that... Uh, that 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 full body look of her of kind of like the the scolding look that she's looking down at all the people that come in contact with her she is one to be feared so that's why they used the camera shots of her where it is a little bit further back and so it's it's a professionally made movie without it screaming hey this is a professionally made movie he has a way of of not over directing a movie but you can tell it has his stamp on it. I mean, unlike we'll be talking about Get On Up uh, when we talk about the movies, a lot of people say that the that director over-directed Get On Up because you just see, you know, all the, the flourishes while you're watching the movie. Yes, Dangerous Liaisons does have these Stephen Freer flourish to it, but again, it's not pretentious and it's not in your face. Really, the only thing that holds the movie down from being a great movie, a perfect movie, is that it, it's missing this gusto behind it. It's missing this umph that whenever you're watching a movie like this, that, or, you know, I could even compare this to what, what it's missing. It's like from the first season, the first two seasons of Downton Abbey, where, yeah, it takes a little while to get used to the characters and the dialogue is a little bit different and but once you get used to the characters and, and the dialogue and how they're speaking and what they're talking about, you get into the flow of things. And man, when that show has the umph, it, it has a way of building excitement through the dialogue and the characters opposed to this like uh, opposed to like this grandiose, super complicated storyline. Dangerous Liaisons has a pretty slim simplistic storyline. But it's based on the characters in the given dialogue. Really, the movie to me didn't pick up until the last act, when things start unraveling and characters decide to turn good, other characters decide to stay bad. That's when you start seeing more of the extreme close-ups. And once war is declared, Glenn Co- Close, man, she has this. There's this great scene in the movie with John Malkovich where he says. Uh, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to say the, go into detail about it, but he says, he gives Glenn Close's character the option of yes or no. If you say yes, everything will be fine. If you say no, that means war. And then the camera starts zooming into Glenn Close and she says, all right. And you think she's going to say yes, but instead she says, not no, but she says war. And it's very sinister and evil and very imperialistic. And then she just walks off screen. It's really, really good. And it's like, God, man, that movie needed more moments like that. And that's what it, that's what it lacked were those defining moments that would have really hooked the audience and would have taken you on this crazy fun ride. Uh, the Accidental Tourist, directed by Lawrence Kasdan, he is, well, he's, he wrote the upcoming Star Wars movie. He wrote Empire Strikes Back. He, uh, one of the first film he directed was Body Heat, which was with William Hurt, as well as Kathleen Turner. Fantastic! 
fantastic modern noir-esque type of romance, or non-romance, anti-neo-romance movie. Lawrence Kasdan did films like The Big Chill, uh, just so many movies. And God, you know, this is what's so good about writers being directors as well, because he is directing his work. It's, It's all his work. This is his stuff. And just how he took such a grim premise a very sad storyline where you could easily if somebody else was in charge of this film you could cry from the opening scene throughout the entire hour and 50 minutes until the fi- until the movie closes where you just want to leave the theater and as you're walking you are slowly splitting open your wrists so you can just die due to how sad this movie is. But no, Lawrence Kasdan wrote the movie and directed the movie, and the performers are fantastic. It's very lighthearted. There are plenty of laughs in it, though there is definitely this underlining uh, uh, sadness. But the whole point of the movie is moving on from a tragedy, and seeing how these people move on in such a way, and seeing how some people don't move on while others do move on, and how that affects their relationship is just wonderful to watch. And if I was going to pick a movie to... Other than Rain Man, and again, I agree with Rain Man. I think that movie holds up today completely. Uh, definitely you know, the pop culture as well. Uh, not, also Dustin Hoffman's perfect spot-on performance the accidental tourist would have been my choice if rain man wasn't on the on the bracket i guess however i do feel that if i got to switch out dangerous liaisons with something i seriously would have chosen something like who framed roger rabbit or the movie big directed by penny marshall and man looking at the best directors you have barry levinson for rain man charles Crichton for a fish called wanda uh, Mike Nichols for Working Girl, Alan Parker for Mississippi Burning, Martin Scorsese for The Last Temptation of Christ. I think that's when I would take Martin Scorsese out and put in Robert Zemeckis for sure. Because you look at Alfonso Cuaron. Alfonso Cuaron won Best Director for Gravity because you look at the special effects. You look at how he was able to make a movie with uh, with fantastic performances but at the same time it's a movie shot completely in front of a green screen with no special effects they're not in zero gravity the he had to direct actors in regular gravity pretending that all of this craziness was going on well robert zemeckis changed the course of cinema of making movies of making movies with real people with live action mixing live action with animation and various other special effects and to me he deserved uh, at least a nomination for Best Director. But man, it's great seeing A Fish Called Wanda. I can go down and review every freaking category because there's just a lot to talk about. Even for Best Supporting Actress, it's like Joan Cusack. Really? But yes, 1988, tip of the hat. Thanks for inviting me into this life, 1988. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to see that along with this, all these movies came out of it as well. I guess we are going to say... That we will be concluding Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next week, again, we will be having a very special Discussions with Matt and Tim regarding the life and times of Robin Williams and a discussion of Matt and Tim's favorite films featuring Robin Williams. Thanks again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim.
right, and here we go then, folks. We're going to jump right into the last one. Here it is, of course. The movie. <laughs> Yes, alright, the movies this week, we had Get On Up, the biological drama film about the life of James Brown. We also had Boyhood, the drama film that uh, was written and directed by Richard Linklater that stars, that basically literally filmed over the span of 12 years to follow a boy from 6 to 18. It's a fictional story, but they used all the same actors, so that was kind of cool. And then last but not least... The Purge. Anarchy. Otherwise known as The Purge. Do-over. Or The Purge. What the first movie should have been. Or The Purge. Outside. (laughs) Or The Purge. I forgot my keys. Or The Purge. What plot holes? What are you talking about? Or The Purge. We're all bad shots. (laughs) Where do you want to start, sir? How about uh, Get On Up? Get on up again. 2014 biopic about James Brown. It was directed by Tate Taylor, uh, the director of The Help, and stars Chadwick Boseman from 42. So, yeah, so now he's played Jackie Robinson and James Brown. Also stars uh, Nelson Ellis, Dan Aykroyd, Viola Davis, Keith Robinson, and Octavia Spencer. Um... Alright, this movie is really, really, really weird for me. It was off-putting mainly because I felt like it couldn't decide whether or not it was trying to be Walk the Line or Ray. And it struggled with trying to find its own, pardon the pun, soul. And consequently struggled most of the way. Now, I understand that all three of these men, these these people in music, had a... had very similar rural upbringings and what have you, and definitely had their fair share of traumas happen to them in early life. And they also apparently all knew Little Richard, So, I guess maybe we should just have a biopic about him instead. But that doesn't mean you can't make your own way and you can carve your own course. And it's kind of like they were taking the cues from Walk the Line and Ray and then trying to make their own little introductory cuts. But the problem was is that the way these cuts happen, you begin to lose track of where you are not only in the life of James Brown, but in the film itself. It's not until about an hour and ten minutes into this movie, and again, the movie is two hours and 18 minutes long. So you're literally halfway into the movie, almost really more than halfway, before the movie finally starts finding its footing and actually becomes a coherent drama that's really, really good. As a matter of fact, towards the last 25 minutes, I believe, they actually very cleverly, mind you, intersperse what I believe to be actual concert footage. 
um, clever, clever people will notice the aspect ratios change. And I was, and so they get really, really good. And then the last 20 minutes starts to shift back into the crap that it was doing in the first hour. Um... And then you've got, and then to, to really kind of throw you off, they keep breaking the fourth wall. I just, it was really weird. I, the, the performances were all good. Don't get me wrong. The, the, all the performances were really well done. I was personally most impressed with Dan Aykroyd. I've never really actually seen him pull off a character, but then actually see some actual dramatic chops start coming out as the character develops. So that was really impressive for me to see. Um, I think that the real star for me would definitely have to be Nelson Ellis who played Bobby Bird. I just think that um, the movie... The movie failed to find itself. It's a technically well-done movie. Uh, everyone does a great job of acting, but I really think that Tate Taylor tried too hard and missed the mark. Uh, for me, two and a half stars. It was just okay. I really like Tate Taylor and his his style of direction. One of the things I know I've mentioned before, and 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 I'm you ever I'm sure if you listed the show with any form of regularity you know that matt doesn't really doesn't like preachy movies and this movie easily could have been uh, could have become a lee daniels the butler type of movie due to where when it, the, the period of time it takes place during the 60s predominantly in the 60s you deal with the the civil rights movement the whole martin luther king assassination all of this stuff but it brings it up so that it goes along with the time period, you know, what's going on in history, and how it directly affects uh, James Brown and his music and all that stuff that is going on. Which I definitely appreciated because the movie definitely focuses on him, but about midway through, it really starts to focus on his friendship with Bobby Bird, who they, they sort of become brothers. However... James Brown becomes the egotistical kind of asshole, and for some reason, which he gives a fantastic uh, explanation for, Nelson or Bobby Bird does. Bobby Bird stays with him. You know, he he stays loyal to him until he cannot anymore. Like he just physically, mentally, just can't. And that was very interesting to see. Now, with that, James Brown in his lifetime. Because just how, you know, how, just how the brain works and how people change, it doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen at the drop of a coin. It takes time. You know, people, people become who they are because the outside world molds them into that person. You know, something has to affect that person to become, you know, what James Brown became. An egotistical, uh, very problematic, very, uh, a very contradictory a very contradicting human being. I mean, you see him do one thing, then he does something else. He treats one person this way, then he treats... Just all this crazy stuff. It's it's kind of ridiculous. But 
like what Matt was saying, what Matt brought up, there's like these changes in time where all of a sudden it goes ahead 10 years or it goes ahead four years, it goes ahead three years, and you notice that his character changes. James Brown changes. His mood changes. He's a little bit crazier. He's a little bit nuttier. He's a little... And then, it, like, time changes again, and he might not be as nutty. He might not be, a, you know, as crazy or whatever, as violent, as off-putting. Then time changes again, and then, bam, he's back to it. And that, and to me, that's what falters. That's what keeps this movie for being... For, for getting more of a rating than I'm going to give it. Because you need to see that character progression. Now, a lot of people got mad with the film Walk the Line because of how it ended, like where it ended in Johnny Cash's life. But what makes Walk the Line such a, a perfect movie is that it takes the time to develop the character, develop the relationship, and it focuses on a period of Johnny Cash's career. And of course, it, it, it extends from there a little bit, but the, the main focus of it is his rise and his... Uh, his his budding of into, into fame really, and that's what makes the movie a great movie. It focuses on a on a period of time. It tells us one story without going through his entire discography and showing you all the ups and downs and what, what his influences and all that stuff. Now, Get On Up doesn't do that. It goes from beginning to nearing the end of James Brown's life. About the early 90s is when it, it gets to. And again, it, it mainly focuses on Nelson Ellis's character, Bobby Bird, as well as James Brown, their relationship. Now, I loved the flow of this movie. I liked from the start of it, the whole plane scenario with the, the engine exploding and on fire. It, it was fun. Him breaking the fourth wall, he did it in such a way that it it flowed with the movie. It was a part of his character. It was The movie itself was eccentric, like James Brown. Well, his portrayal of James Brown, I should say. And I really like Tate Taylor as a director. I like what he did with The Help, because again, like I said with this movie, it could easily be a preachy film. The Help, which is about race uh, more so than this movie, 95% more so about race than Get On Up, there's still an entertaining factor to that movie. And Get On Up is super entertaining. It's fun. It's fresh. I appreciated how the movie tried to be different from all the other music biopics that covered this era, like Ray and uh, Walk the Line, which Ray and Walk the Line ultimately are very similar, which I wholeheartedly, I, I love, I prefer Walk the Line to Ray by far. Why? Because Walk the Line is a good movie. It's an entertaining movie. And this movie is entertaining, but it definitely, definitely has its faults. But I did like this movie quite a bit. I give this one four stars out of five. All right. Well, I would just like to take one bit of exception with something you said in your review, and that is the flow of the movie. You were stating that you liked the way that it started and then how you were how you had mentioned that it started with the Vietnam thing and then kind of progressed to the 90s, but it doesn't do that. That's just the first of many cut jumps that it takes. It starts off with his 1988 shooting up this uh, mall. 
Well, yeah. Well, no. I mean, but I, I that didn't. And then, and, and it didn't even start there. That it starts in a concert setting. Starts in a concert venue as he walks down a hall, and then immediately cuts to that, and then goes through that, and then immediately cuts to the Vietnam thing, and then immediately cuts to something else where he was, where he is on some white set. You know, he's like a bunch of whole bunch surrounded by a bunch of honkies. And they don't really even say where that is or when, and they don't address it ever again. And then they'll bounce to something back, and then they bounce to something right, back. Right? Yeah. And then well, and that's what I—that's what I was saying—is that you don't get the you don't get the bits of information that you need to know what the hell is going on. Now, I said the the beginning of the movie with the plane. All right. How, whatever the hell the first scene of the movie is. I'm not trying to catch you out in anything. Oh, no, no, I got you. Don't no, I'm just saying that just... it's... Uh, wherever the movie begins, and then where it ends, and just the flow of it, with that that's including the, the, the flashbacks, the going forward, the going back, all that stuff doesn't bother me. It's just the, the information that they don't provide you. Like what you said, like with the whole... Uh, when he's on the set with the Surrounded by the Dancing Honkies... <laughs> And you, you don't know where that's at. You don't know what, what show that is, though. Episode title, The Dancing Yeah. <laughs> but it's just the, the, the bits of information that it left out that would have made thing, that would have made more sense. There we go. Would have helped make more sense. Okay, cool yeah. beans. Cool beans. All right, well, where do you want to go from here, sir? Boyhood. All right, Boyhood. Written and directed by Richard Linklater. Stars Patricia Arquette. Uh, Ethan Hawke. L.R. Coltrane, and Lorelai Linkletter. Now, this film was shot intermittently over a period of 12 years, and it tells the story about six-year-old Mason as he transitions through the different phases of boyhood into young adulthood as he is 18 and going off to college. So you're really seeing that whole shift, and it's just amazing to see how well this gamble paid off. The cinematography is just absolutely outstanding. Again, this is one of those things where you can truly see the remarkable relationship between the cinematographers and the director, where a shared vision is truly shared. It's not it's not something that was dictated. It's not something where artistic license was mistranslated by one or the other party this is something that's just absolutely amazing the soundtrack of course well it's Richard Linklater of course it's going to be at at worst it would be a decent soundtrack but of course it's an amazing soundtrack but it's the performances these performances are so amazing so lifelike so real just absolutely fantastic and for me this would be a five star movie but for one thing. The movie sets the tone very, very early on that it's that this is a series of vignettes that will tell one cohesive story by the time that it's done. And the only characters that you're supposed to care about are Mason, his sister Samantha, his mother Olivia, and to a lesser degree, his father Mason. Now he's Mason Jr. Um, 
The problem is that when you have a compelling story and you create compelling minor characters, you want to know what happens with the minor characters. And the stage is set early on when Mason and the kids, they move from where they are in Texas to Houston. And his friend, Mason's friend, just tries to say goodbye to him. He tries to call. His sister won't let him talk to Mason. And then they end up moving, and he never says bye to his friend. His friend's biking down the road, and he just kind of looks at him and looks away, and the car drives off, and then you just you never see or hear that kid again. It's really... You, you know, you again, you're, the stage is set at that point that this is how the movie is going to play out in terms of the story being told. The problem here is that they create such good minor characters. There are some, some step-siblings, especially. That was the biggest one for me. There are some step-siblings that have a very integral part in the development of not just the characters themselves, but the movie as a whole. And when the vignette moves on, never to be seen again. Grandma takes a... Grandma takes a, a is part of this story and part of the dynamic. And aside from a bittersweet twenty second resolution towards the end of the film, once again never really seen or heard from again. Some of the vignettes are actually so quick that you almost wonder what the point of the minor character sitting in these. Uh, sitting in the scenes really actually are there for for instance there's a scene uh in the last third of the movie as mason is getting older uh he's clearly 15 16 ish and he's in the back of the station wagon with his with his uh girlfriend or a girl that he likes or whatever they're kind of making out he jumps out the back of the station wagon goes inside and that scene evolves from there and then you never see anything about anybody who's in that car ever again. And instead of it being done where they could have just started the scene with him saying, all right, guys, I'll see you later, and getting out and going, and then having the actual scene, they take the time to establish the shot by being in the station wagon with him and his friends. It's these kinds of things. It's, again, amazing storytelling. But the problem is, is you're creating these characters, even minor ones, that you want to see more of, or at least some kind of resolution, or sometimes, uh, or, or some kind of uh, answer to, and you don't ever get it. And I realize that just like in real life, sometimes you don't get closure. And just like in real life, sometimes you are left to wonder whatever happened to and in a way, sometimes that's what introspective reflection is about. But that doesn't mean you have to do it for every single character that you come across if you're not in the Fab Four. And for that reason, and that reason alone, it goes from a five-star movie to a four-star movie. Still really, really like the movie, and I still recommend it. But it goes from loving that movie to just really, really, really liking it. Go ahead, Tim. Tell me how I'm wrong. Tell me how I dare slander the name Richard Linkletter. No, no, I'm, no, I'm not uh, gonna. I'm not. I, don't, I do not disagree <laughs> with you with that. Uh, but I took more issue with other things. A few positive things, real quick. 
This movie is like two hours and 50, 50 minutes, including credits. Actually, no, it's like two hours and 45 minutes with credits. And I was entertained and, and glued to the movie for the entire time. While other people around me, I was they were kind of huffing, like, <sighs> you know, they didn't understand what they were in for and all that stuff. While other people loved it. There's some great humor, fantastic dialogue. I love Ethan Hawke. I love Patricia Arquette, Ethan Hawke, and Richard Lankletter. They should make a movie every freaking year because between this movie and the Midnight movies that Richard Linkletter and Ethan, both Richard Linkletter and Ethan Hawke did, uh, just just gold, man. They cannot do any wrong uh, together for sure. There's a lot of things I felt that important things that they left out that happened. That happens during when a when a when a boy grows up when a when a the transition for for from boys to men <laughs> happens that they do not that they leave out yes they do have the drunken fathers you know that uh, the, the drunken stepdads but yet it doesn't it doesn't really go into the whole thing like whenever I would get punished I would I would like not be able to go out and do anything like I would not be able to use the phone, the cell phone would have been taken away, you know, I, I, there, were, there would have been punishments, and I wouldn't do certain things, because I knew I would have gotten my ass chewed out, and it felt like that this kid, he had so much freedom to do whatever, and yet he, he like, they, they make it a point to talk about, like, how everybody is always harping on him, though you do see him in scenes where he does get harped on by his, his stepmom, his stepdad, his mom, as school teacher, kids at school, and yada yada yada. But there's like the the other things, the underlining things that how his parents treat him, and what what they do to punish him that would have added more to the character. That to me would have added more realism. Uh, though I'm not saying that 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 it's a one trick pony, you know, type of thing. Like they're just banking on the fact that they shot the movie over 12 years, and you actually get to see the same kid play himself throughout this, you know, throughout this 12, 11, 12 year period of time. I'm not saying that. It's just, it would have been nice to see all these things. It also would have been nice if, if it didn't fall into the traditional high school party scene where it looks and feels nothing like a real high school or junior high party. Yes, I understand they're in San Marcos, but as a, especially junior high schooler, I have never been to a party like the parties that these guys go to, especially when they did that whole camp out in the, in the house that's being built with the, the seniors in high school and their friends, like the shit they talked about and how they were kind of bullies and the, the, like the language they used. Yeah. I hung out with seniors whenever I was really young and you know, they, you know, they would joke around about stuff, but it was never that it was never like that. Never like that. And just stuff like that. It felt like it was a little too much it was trying for for the sake of of a time frame, for the sake of a vignette. They were trying to throw it all out there and make it forced, without it have it happening naturally. And I know they can do stuff where it happens naturally because everything with Patricia Arquette, everything with Ethan Hawke, is natural. Like it's it's a father talking to his kids about sex. 
about using protection. And the kids are so young, they should even, you know, they're not really even thinking about that sort of thing. And so you get that candid shot of the kids turning red, you know, like getting kind of embarrassed because they're having this conversation with an older man sort of thing. That stuff is priceless and it works. But when you get to the scripted dialogue, especially with the kids, there's a scene when the main boy is walking down the street and this young girl who just comes out of nowhere starts talking to him. And like all of her dialogue is forced. It's forced. It's forced. And it just doesn't come across naturally, which it would have been nice if it did. And I think, again, it's because you have these scenes, vignettes or whatever, you have these segments that you have to follow a script. You have to follow some sort of path so that it does kind of make sense. Now, what's interesting about this movie is that they wrote it with the idea, with without a particular direction in mind. When the movie started, they talked to the actors, they came, came up with characters. The boy based his character on how he grew up, how he grew into an 18-year-old. So it followed his footsteps and his thoughts, his, you know, what he was going through at the time, his experiences. And same thing with, uh, with Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. They used their own personal experiences to develop their characters over the years. And that was just so awesome to see. It was, it was definitely, I think, a feat in filmmaking. People have compared this movie to Tree of Life, where again, Tree of uh, Tree of Life is another movie where it explores childhood, the uh, the the inner workings of family, like what it means to be a kid, what it means to have a father that, or have a family that loves you but still they're strict, you know, like like the 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 classic uh, butting of heads between the son and the dad. And what I got from that movie is kind of what I was getting was wanting to get through from Boyhood, but I didn't quite get there. Tree of Life touched me in the inside. It, it grabbed me by the heart and didn't let go for the hour and 50 minute running time. That was my life. Boyhood, I can definitely relate. Can definitely relate. But it was more of like just watching this kid's experience and thinking like, oh, you know, that would have been nice or, oh, well, that sucks. But I give the movie 4.5 stars. Enjoyed it. Love Richard Linkletter. Again, love Patricia Arquette. Love what they did with the movie. Uh, it's cool that an experimental piece like this can be as successful and as entertaining and interesting as it was. Well, then I guess that leaves us with The Purge. Insert subtitle here. Yeah. It's technically called The Purge Anarchy. Well, I know it might be hard to tell after all the fucking subtitle shit we put in. Um, all right, so again, this is an action thriller film from 2014. It was directed by James DeMonaco and stars Frank Grillo, Carmen Ejogo, Zach Guilford, Kylie Sanchez, Michael Kay, and Williams. Now, of course, this is, a, this is the annual Purge where... One night a year from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., all bets are off. No help will come. Police and fire and medical are all rescinded, and so is the law up to including murder. Uh, you can kill anybody you want, beat anybody up you want, whatever, do anything. You pretty much do anything you please within certain parameters. You can't use certain level of explosives. And then, of course, the government people, high-up-ranking government officials are immune. And this basically was pretty much what the first movie was supposed to be like. Uh, you get to see the rich 
doing it the way the rich people do. You get to see the poor people doing it the way the poor people do. And then, of course, you get to see all the maniacs in between, as well as one guy who's on a vendetta, so to speak. Now, I had a buddy of mine uh, meet up with me, and we went and saw this flick. And we were having so much fun joking with it and everything that we forgot to not enjoy it. Now, I would recommend that you, if you're going to go see this movie, that you do see it uh, during the day when it's cheap and definitely not in any kind of, you know, XD or IMAX or whatever kind of special format. It's just regular, get it in, get there as cheap as you can. And take friends and have a good time. Make it almost like a Rift Tracks MST3K kind of thing. And you can laugh at all the plot holes and everything like that. Because I found that the movie itself, when you're distracted from all that crap that's going on because you're talking and joking and having a good time with it, is actually kind of fun. That being said, it's still a pretty horrific movie. <laughs> now, I did come away actually liking it, just because it was fun to see all of the different aspects of legitimate filmmaking that were attempted. They actually tried to have a few different stories, and they tried to have a few different reasons for everyone being where they were going to be, and they tried to kind of grow the franchise a little bit, and have a little bit more conspiratorial aspects to it so that you can make more movies, kind of like Saw, where each movie is kind of a standalone thing, but starts to become a bigger and bigger picture, part of a you know whole big puzzle. So all of those things were actually really neat. The problem is, is that the acting at best is mediocre and is often not at best. And then you have all of the ridiculousness that is the hail to the founding fathers bullshit and all that. And it's just like, you know, and then of course, pure class warfare where there's a guy railing against, this is all about rich people trying to keep poor people down. Don't you understand? We can't have them be, these people doing this to us. And the, so the moral of the story is, I'm going to teach you that violence isn't the answer if I have to kill you. And if you watch the movie, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. So the whole movie almost undoes its entire premise by the end just so that it can work out to tell the story that it needs to tell from all the different angles. Then you have the plot holes. Ridiculous plot holes. Just completely ridiculous plot holes. Rail guns, mini, rail, rail guns, mini guns being used with armor-piercing rounds uh, that can manage to completely mangle an entire engine but miss every tire armor-plated car, by the way, miss the tires completely, and all of the people on the motorcycles and in the non-armor-plated truck following the people in the armor-plated car. And then somehow, after everybody gets away, that's when the hose breaks and the steam comes out, and then they pull over and they raise the hood, and the engine block's been shot to shit. That's just one. And that's early on. That's like in the first 20 minutes. Then you have the, there's the little side part where you have the Soylent Green aspect of it, where you have people who are paid by rich people to volunteer themselves to be slaughtered, and then, like, your family gets the money. You know, so you have that, that thing. And then, of course, the Soylent Green tie-in is how they want you to kill yourself, and they have these wonderful centers to come and, you know, beautifully end your own life. Scientology. 
Um, and yeah, and then of course, I mean, it's just the, the plot holes just get more and more ridiculous by the end of the film. So I really liked that this movie was trying to be trying to grow the franchise. I like that this movie was trying to um, do some things thematically and cinematically to make it a better movie than the first one. Uh, and I liked that with me and my buddy Chris, we were having a good time, you know, making fun of the movie as we watched it. So I'm. I gotta say three stars, but only because of that. Strictly on filmmaking, this is like a 1.75 star movie, but I got I had a good time watching it, and I cannot I cannot deny that. Uh, okay, so the best thing I can say about this movie is that it has a fantastic premise. Like the first one, it definitely could be a great franchise, but what it misses is the 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 this is like the saw aspect which what made saw great i thought what made it a fun franchise to look forward to every october and pay the money to go see it at night the night the, the day it comes out yeah the 10 p.m. showing is that it had a atmosphere to it it had a mood to it it had a feeling it actually had a horror or dread aspect to it even the gore factor or whatever that that, that brought people to it or even just the story itself because it had all these reveals where people were like holy shit holy shit this is happening is it gonna happen and oh my god it did happen and that's what brought people in this is what the purge is missing now i have a list of comments that is considerably shorter than transformers that i'm just gonna run through really fast one it should have been called the purge cliche Everyone is so casual before the purge starts. Now, two hours before the purge begins, that is when people decide to go to the fucking grocery store. Two hours before it is mass murder about to happen, and that is when people decide to, you know, I think I'm going to go to the store and buy canned beans. Now, why would you go to the grocery store to to buy food, to buy water, to buy shit that is not a weapon used to castrate cut off or just murder somebody when this thing is only going to last 12 hours so about 16 hours later or 18 hours later you'd be able to go to that grocery store and you know safely purchase you you know yourself some beanie weenies or whatever the hell you want to get or just stock up, you know, maybe a week or two earlier, just so you can you you have that already ready, so you don't have to go out that whole day or that whole day after. It just it's dumb. It's it's so obvious that they were trying to create a a suspense, a story outline, or or a reason to put these people in jeopardy, in potential jeopardy, that they had them go to a goddamn grocery store. Ay caramba, dude. I caramba. Next thing I have here is that they are casually running in the middle of a downtown street in L.A. during the purge. So instead of, like, creeping along... This is before, like, they become a band of people working together. The, the guy and the man and the woman. Instead of, like, staying close to the buildings, they're running in the middle of a freaking intersection in downtown freaking L.A. It's It's stupid. 
in, uh, in the middle of an intersection. It's four lanes. Four lanes, and then four lanes going right through it. You are bound to be seen. Also, snipers. You have snipers, you have rocket launch, all this crap that could easily get you. Um, time jumps ahead six hours, randomly. You don't know what happens within that six hours. You don't know what could have happened in that six hours. They could have used that six hours for their advantage. People just show up with no explanation whatsoever. Uh, they, uh, they, they use words to justify the random showing up like, and I quote you, I know he's here. He shot me. I want him. I know he's here. Well, how do you know he's there? Yeah, stuff like that. The movie relies on all this cliche, you know, trope stuff without there being any experience for the audience. You know, they could use that six-hour jump to tell a more dare I say, drawn-out story. They could have used tension. What makes Die Hard such a good movie? Because it's two hours long. And they use that two hours to build tension, to lead up to the next action scene, to have these little action scenes that tie into one big action scene that works beautifully. And they could have used that six hours that they cut out for the characters to build tension, to add to the story. Like I said before, there's no mood and there's no constant, consistent tone throughout the movie. This is... This this isn't a horror movie. This isn't an action movie. What the hell is it? There's no dread. What would consider this being an action movie is held up by a really shitty action-leading guy. He's a douchebag. The guy is a douchebag. He He's the guy that gets out of a car and takes, like, five minutes to, like, slowly get out of his car. He pops the collar. He... D- Oh my god. Again, there's no dread. There's nothing. No tension. Nothing. Everyone is such a bad shot also. Again, the whole cliche, the gun thing. Everyone is such a bad shot until one of the dudes dies at the end. Who gets shot? And it's like somebody shoots him. They just like bust through a door and shoot the gun and bam, they shot him dead. When throughout the entire movie, people are out in the open being shot at and yet they still didn't get shot. It didn't make any sense. I give this movie 1.75, so I was there with you. I mean, it's definitely an entertaining movie to sit and uh, and critique throughout MSTK3 style, but it's, def- it's, it's also in those movies you just want to just hit your forehead repeatedly because it's like, goddamn, why? If Nicolas Cage can do it better, then there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Right on. All right, well, that takes care of the movies for this week. Uh, next week's flicks are going to be, whoop, here we go. Next week's flicks are going to be The Expendables 3, The Giver, and Urban Cowboy. All right, so I guess that wraps up the show yet again. Are we ready for the spiel, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, as always, our, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. With the exception, of course, to our discussions music, that comes from museopen.org. As far as Cries of Solace, you can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, are still the SLS cast, and you can check us out at SLSCast.com. 
You can also send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow myself on Twitter at nittwit12345. And of course, you can search us on Facebook there and subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Also, a special little shout out to our podcasting friends at midnight movie nights because they have added us to their calendar so you can find us when you're looking and enjoying their content as well so that's midnight movie nights nights with a k.com so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to gwyneth paltrow i get to say this i'd rather smoke crack than eat cheese from a tin and this is tim talk to you next week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>